everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey the Whimsical Platypus Snockrin. Okay, that's weird. Yeah. Whimsical platypuses get along with mystery snails. Ah, uh, I get it now. You'll see. Well, <laughs> just a short episode today as we chat about another privilege escalation vulnerability of Microsoft Windows, uh, and then also <laughs> the first ever ransomware activity report from VirusTotal. Uh, with that, let's stroll on in. So let's start today with a, another fun named APT. And backing up a bit, as a part of uh, last Tuesday's Microsoft Patch Tuesday, Microsoft fixed a actively exploited zero-day privilege escalation vulnerability in the Win32K kernel driver that's affecting all versions and flavors of Windows dating back to Windows Vista. Uh, I'm pretty sure Vista's well out of support, but they even released patches for that as well as Windows 7 and everything else uh, since then as well. Uh, but alongside the patch, uh, Kaspersky, who discovered the flaw, uh, published a blog post detailing the vulnerability and a new APT activity cluster, which they called Mystery Snail. Which... What? <laughs> Mystery Snail? I, okay, I think like, I, I would, figured I out would the game. expect it. Is this like some weird phishing on classic postal mail? <laughs> I mean, why snail? I, I, I'm sure we'll figure out. I figured out their game. Like, I think they pick like just two, like an animal. So snail, bear, something like that. Uh, and then like another, oh man, I, I'm about to fail English. Mystery is still a noun in this case, correct? Adjective mystery? I don't know. In this context, I believe it's a noun, which we'll get into in a second. Anyways, I think they're picking just two random words, one of them being an animal, throwing them together uh, and continuing on the fancy bear bandwagon at this point. Sounds like one of those stupid Facebook things where they tell you to to pick your. Uh, is, is it not safe for podcasts to say porn name by doing <laughs> your street and, and your your first street and something else? And by the way, never do those games. That's just social engineering to get your uh, password guessing. Some <laughs> no no. Those are questions that tend to be anyway. What's your superhero name? <laughs> first word is your mother's maiden name. Second word is your date of birth. There you go. <laughs> Anyways. But yeah, it is the same kind of concept. They're picking a, a, a animal and something else. We're going to need to step up our own naming conventions, I think. But continuing on with the story, uh, they noted that Mystery Snail appears to have enacted espionage campaigns against IT companies, uh, defense contractors, and diplomatic entities in the last year. So they're targeting potentially, you know, I, I bet this falls under the service provider bandwagon where seen a lot of threat actors these days going after folks that have elevated levels of access to other entities as well. Um, they said they've got code similarities and reused command and control infrastructure that's allowed them to connect the attacks with the Chinese-speaking threat actor known as Iron Husky. So even though this is a separate cluster, they do at least have some relation with that APT as well, and appears to be at least based out of China or a Chinese-speaking region. Um, or, you know, false flag attack, and it's actually Russian, but they wrote it in Chinese. Who knows? Um, now, the specific vulnerability that was patched here was a use-after-free condition in the kernel driver, uh, which is actually a really common problem for this particular kernel driver. You'll notice it seems like every six months or so they patch another one in there, just because 
it accepts both. I'm sure everyone notices that, Mark, while we're talking about it. I can't wait to hear you explain a use after free vulnerability to an audience that may not code. Yes. All right. <laughs> uh, I guess that's a great segue into talking about what a use after free flaw is. And basically, like in an application, um, you'll have references to different functions in there. So different pre-built like areas of code that are going to do something. Like I might have a function to add a button to an HTML web page or a function to then remove or change the text inside that button. Uh, or in like a program, you know, a button to paint this thing red or a button to delete this, whatever. Um, and as you are using this application, uh, these functions, these code areas will be um, mapped out onto the heap, as it's called. So like this dynamically allocated memory location where a running process yeah. can... Honestly, you don't have to know much of, of heap versus stack. It's just memory. It's mapped out in this particular pace in memory. I, I guess for the nerds out there, it's a little harder to exploit heap memory corruption versus stack because with stack, you're you're right near the place you need to be to be get code execution. With heap, you have to do some work to get there. So as the program's running, it'll allocate like all the the actual code for this function onto the heap. Uh, and then it will give you a pointer, so the memory location where it is located. So then anytime that application wants to call that function, like change color to red, it just pulls up that pointer and then executes the function at that location. That's uh, the super high level overview. A use after free flaw occurs where as the application's running, it will remove functions from memory as they're no longer needed potentially, as it's cleaning up uh, garbage collection as it's called. Um, and if that flaw doesn't properly uh, clear out that memory location or remove that that pointer cleanly, um, you basically have this allocated bit of memory with a dangling pointer, meaning that that pointer still exists. That code can still potentially call that pointer. Like you could trick the program into trying to call that function again, even though it has been technically removed, uh, which means then the attacker, if they have the ability to overwrite that memory location, uh, maybe just uh, reuse that memory space, uh, maybe through another function, write something else into it. They can use that pointer then to execute a function under their control in the context of that application. Yep. And the TLDR or the TLDL, too long didn't listen, <laughs> is essentially all memory corruption class of flaws, whether they're buffer overflows, buffer underflows, uh, what's the negative use after free. Uh, there's a bunch of them. But they're all the same thing. If you can control places in memory, there are tricks you might be able to do to get to a stack pointer that can allow you to do code execution. So if you don't care about the details, it's just a bug that could have remote ec codex or code execution connotation at the privilege. And the reason that the this, uh, being. this style of flaw keeps popping up in this specific Windows driver is because user land, so non-privileged users, have access to a lot of functions in it. Whereas the kernel itself, it runs at system level on the operating system. And so you, if through one of those functions that you as a unprivileged user have permission to call, if there is a vulnerability in there, like a use after free flaw, you might be able to exploit that to then run code as this kernel, so in system level on the host. So pretty common privilege escalation vulnerability there. Um, so Kaspersky, through their blog post, actually gave some details on a remote access trojan they found using this vulnerability prior to it being disclosed and patched by Microsoft. 
Uh, there were, and you said, said this, by the way, but we mentioned a remote Trojan, but this is a local privilege. It, it sounds like this isn't the, the reason I had to correct myself with remote code execution is you do need to have something on the system in order to exploit Exactly. This. this is, I mean, it's a classic privilege escalation vulnerability. Basically, you take yeah. a bad incident, so malware or malicious code or shell code running on a host, and you make it worse by giving it elevated privileges on that host. Um, which is basically step one in any malware infection. They will immediately try and elevate their privileges to systems so they have full control over the whole the, operating system. There, there are occasionally network bugs, yep. network triggered bugs that have system right away, but many don't. Like Eternal Blue is one need of those. A bug like this. Where the SMB driver on Windows runs at elevated levels, so exploiting a flaw in there gives you full system remote code execution at that But point. it would be safe to say probably most are local, and that's why yep. this is a common way to take a a less severe remote flaw and make it more severe with the extra local privilege escalation. Yeah. Um, so in analyzing the remote access Trojan, there were a few standouts they found. Like first off, it's really big, at least comparatively to other Trojans. It was almost it was malware. Big. Yeah. 8.29 megabytes, which is small for typical applications, but massive for malware these days. Uh, there's Most a, is under a meg, significantly under a meg, and a, above a meg is unusual. Yep. A few of those reasons, so it was statically compiled with the OpenSSL library. So normally, um, applications will try and dynamically load these libraries that may exist on the system. In this case, it's probably using it for some function, and they wanted to make sure it was paired with it. Also, it had two very big functions that literally do nothing but waste processor clock cycles. Uh, it's a common evasion technique to get around like some sandboxing-based detections, potentially, or anti-malware engines that might give up after it runs for a while. Um, there were a large number of exported functions while only one of them is actually used. So in some of these like libraries that you load up, typically malware these days, I mean, maybe not typically, but commonly malware these days will use libraries instead of actual executables. And they'll use something like a reflection, reflected injection attack through like a power exploit or something. These are all the, the, the living off the land or fileless malware we talk about is usually this type of of attack marks talking about. And so these libraries will then have exported functions into that whatever process space they map themselves into uh, that they then execute. And in this case, they're saying they've got a whole bunch of exports. So it looks like there's a ton of different functions in there, but only one of them is actually used by the malware. So again, probably another way to evade detection or at least evade analysis. It's got two hard-coded URLs in plain text that aren't actually used. And then the real command and control URL is protected just with a single byte ZOR, so very basic obfuscation in there. Um, and then they basically said the Trojan itself, its functionality isn't super sophisticated, but it does have some uncommon capabilities like monitoring for inserted disk drives, and then it can act as a proxy as well. Um, so interesting though, seeing this tied to a effectively a zero day vulnerability for, uh, for privilege escalation. Well, what was zero day? Zero day at that time, yes. Yeah. If if you want the practical tip, if all of this sounds like blah, 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 nerd speak, if you haven't applied Microsoft's Tuesday patches, this is in the wild. This is an excuse to patch. Yeah, 100%. And like it continues a bit of a trend that we see where, I mean, we've talked about it a few times with research from other uh, like penetration testers that basically say, if I'm able to run something on a Windows host, I will be able to get privilege escalation on it. Like basically 100% success rate with enough time from a unprivileged account to a system I, I, account. I would say with enough time from sophisticated actors that know how to reverse and find these, I, I, I will say 
you know, Microsoft fixes these. There's definitely lots of local privilege escalation, and there's probably a lot of attack surface there. It's easier to do local privilege escalation. I mean, even old things like DLL hijacking, uh, I guess that's, yeah, that is a form of local privilege escalation, depending on where they're doing it, uh, exists. Uh, so yeah, I, I do think, you know, New management aside, I do think Microsoft's doing pretty well at trying to clean these up. They're not ignoring them. Well, it's not always their fault like, either. There like, are a lot of attack surface, yeah. If you've got like a software vendor that gives you an application, they say, you have to install this and run it as administrator, even if it doesn't necessarily need like system level privileges. Like if there's an issue in that specific software application, someone could exploit sure. that to gain system level permissions then on that. And there's many products that uh, use kernel level drivers that can expose system just by their own product. And those are the type of like if I have a product that installs a kernel driver, it obviously would require a system to install even. Uh, so yeah, you're, you're exactly right. If I remember right, I mean, DLL hijacking is something that can be exposed in third-party products too. So so yeah, you're, you're exactly right. There's a ton of attack surface on any local computer. The, I, I think it's pretty clear that uh, local is worse than remote. If I can at least get something on the computer, even under privilege, there's a higher chance that I'm going to get that privilege eventually. Yeah, 100%. But don't let that stop you from patching and at least removing yeah. all these low-hanging fruit. You don't, you don't want those mystery snails crawling <laughs> around your yard. It's, I mean, I'm curious what the next one. I really want to see their name generator at this point. Do you think it's just like a button on an internal web app where they hit the button <laughs> it and go, oh, funny. Look, today we're going to be Fluffy Spaceship. I guess Spaceship isn't an animal. That's a fun fluffy, fluffy badger. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, whenever I think Mystery Snail, what's the what's the Batman enemy villain that wears the green thing with question marks? Riddler. I think of a Riddler. There you go. I, I think of a, a snail with Riddler stuff painted all over its shell. I think you just found the marketing logo for this particular one. There we go. You're welcome, Kaspersky. <laughs> <laughs> uh, moving on, though, um, just this last week, also, VirusTotal released their first ever ransomware activity report, what they called the global, uh, the ransomware in a global context report. But, but Mark, it was Google that released this. Okay. Google <laughs> owns VirusTotal. VirusTotal was bought by Google. <laughs> um, anyways, so they went through basically all of their ransomware submissions for the last year to VirusTotal, which, as you might imagine, is a massive amount. A lot. I was going to say, like, if anyone releases a report about malware trends, I would listen. I mean, every every AV company in the world uses the virus total to some extent. So they definitely are in the right position to know what's going on. A hundred percent. And so this report was based off of just the last year or so. So since 2020, or they went through and analyzed every single ransomware submission that they had and tried to pull out some interesting findings. And there actually were quite a few interesting findings. Like to start with it, uh, since 2020, they identified 130 major ransomware families as being active uh, with a baseline of like 100 or so, what they called not so popular families that always stick around. And then a fluctuating number of new variants that come in with a pretty successful infection rate or at least submission rate. Like this is all again based off of submissions to virus total, which you can assume typically means it was detected at some point, whether it be successful or through some antivirus software. So it's still a pretty good meter of what's actively out there in the wild. And and, and by the way, 
it also represents more than just signature-based detection because VirusTotal now has lots of, we, we talk about how machine learning and behavioral analysis can proactively catch stuff. Many of the engines in VirusTotal are, are, are catching that quote unquote zero day malware we talk about. Too. Panda included, like we're in there. This I, I want to be really quick for the time's sake. We have a short episode today, but uh, one thing I do want to note is notice there's only a uh, hundred or so families. You sometimes see these numbers that uh, on average, AV vendors catch 6 million new threats a day. And that not, the truth is, there's probably only when you go across all malware, only thousands of families of malware. And so that that huge number, six million, is more the evasive packing encrypting we're talking about. You know, every malware today is on a signature level, a new variant or a, a new a new hash at the very least, but they still tend to belong to just a few families. It's not like people are writing six million new malware programs a day. Correct. They said they were able to group them into 30,000 different clusters based off similarity, but that translated down to these 130 or so families. Uh, that said, even within the families, there were still enough variants where basically there was always between 1,000 and 2,000 clusters at any given point in time of these ransomware families out there, basically, uh, to a peak of 5,000 or so active clusters in September 2020. Uh, the most prolific one was GANDCRAB by a significant margin, which was primarily in early 2020 before tapering off. Server was the second most prolific. I feel like it's GANCRAB has been around. Yeah. I, this is by their volume, right? Because GANCRAB's been around a lot longer than that. I This is just very back old to daily videos. Yeah. Uh, and interestingly enough, WannaCry was still in the top 10. I think it came in at number six for detections uh, over the last year or so. Uh, when it came to most affected countries, the U.S. was not in the top 10, which was interesting. Uh, Israel yeah. was the, the the highest one with a 600% increase over the baseline. South Korea was second with a 175% increase, and it kind of tapered off there through several other Asian uh, countries, including Singapore, the Philippines, down to Iran with UK coming in at 10th place. But it, but it was hockey stick taper off, yeah. meaning, I mean, Israel was a huge line, even compared to South Korea's close, and everything else was... I, I, trivial is probably overstated, but very hockey stick. Yeah, I, I saw that too, Mark. It certainly makes me wonder why. It's interesting that, like, I mean, I'm an American, so I assume that we're the most important people in the world, but it's interesting not showing up in the top 10 for these malware submissions or detections. Yeah, my, my yeah, it, it, it certainly is. I, I'm wondering if this it's more uh, where the security controls are being developed or, or where the malware is being developed. And to be frank, Israel is a company we don't, or country company. Ugh. Israel is a country that, you know, often you hear us talk about China, North Korea, sometimes Brazil for banking, Russia. Israel does have very, very strong uh, cyber teams, uh, and they're a very active country in the, in the cybersecurity industry, too. But it, it does make me wonder if, you know, what is the criminal element there as well? Yeah, if any, I, I don't know. It was just it's an interesting number that uh, I can partially maybe hypothesize has to do with security industries and companies that show up there first. Uh, but uh, it made me wonder for sure. When it came to the actual payloads, 95 percent of the t detections were Windows executables or DLLs. Uh, Two percent were Android based. 
And they noted that Evil Quest specifically was one family targeting OSX, and it had a million samples submitted mostly around mid-2020. So it seems like ransomware is predominantly Windows targeted, which makes sense. Windows is still the overwhelming majority of market share, especially for endpoints. Um, but 2% of Android, I mean, it's interesting seeing Android even show up on there. I didn't think mobile ransomware was that big. I, mean, I guess 2% isn't that big. <laughs> What's not surprising is that of mobile malware, Android is the one to show up. Not a com- not a comment on security, more a comment on just the ability to sideload it all. 100%. Uh, so very few, so only 5% of samples were directly, or directly associated with exploits. The majority were deployed using either social engineering or droppers. Uh, when it came to the ones that did exploit vulnerabilities, only two of the top 10 uh, were vulnerabilities disclosed in 2020. None of them were in 2021. So they're using relatively old exploits uh, for the ones that do use exploits uh, to start these infections, which is kind of on par with what we see through our own data of a lot of these old threats are still popular because they work. Uh, yeah. And I, I think it, it's a good thing for folks in the security industry to, to remember to remind you guys is we sometimes talk about what we think is the technically cool stuff like zero day and super advanced attacks. But 90%, 95% probably of malware infections start with a stupid email that maybe someone just ran an attachment or clicked the link. Uh, and that starts a script or dropper that goes through the rest. So it's the uh, there's good news there, right? I mean, not everything is the crazy. I was going to say crazy ass. Did I just get bleep mark? I don't know. We'll find out. It, not not everything uses the crazy uh, zero day cool stuff that we talk about because it's fascinating and sophisticated. Uh, just doing security 101 is going to block a lot of this stuff. Yep. And when it came to other malware artifacts, so other malware payloads associated with some of these attacks, Emotet was far and away the most popular one, but Zbot, Drydex, several other Trojans popped up there as well. Zbot. Yeah, there's an oldie. I have I have 15-year-old malware analysis videos with Zbot source code. From I, I look Mark's age in these videos. Look up, you know... WatchGuard botnet malware analysis, and you'll see my Zbot. It's still freaking around. What the? By the way, it was called Castle or Zbot. By the way, is a baby child of Rbot, which was before it, IRC botnet. So it just shows the code reuse that happens in the underground forever and ever. And of these bots, they were actually used by almost all of the top ten ransomware families too. Um, so they do seem to be being distributed through some of these botnets or at least using some of the applications as basically a loader. When it came to lateral movement, Mimikatz and Cobalt Strike were the most popular, but script-based attacks living off the land with like Auto IT and PowerShell uh, were also fairly common too, which, I mean, if you've listened to this podcast, you're well aware of that. Uh, We talk about these script-based living off the land attacks all the time as really common ways to move laterally around a network. And it appears in the ransomware ecosystem, that's equally the same too um they gave a few anti-malware defensive takeaways it's all like stuff you've probably heard so make sure that you have endpoint protection and anti-malware layers to catch these well-known rats and trojans that distribute ransomware make sure you have a strong patch strategy uh, that prioritizes smb and windows privilege escalation vulnerabilities like that privilege escalation flaw we just talked about (laughs) Um, internal patch mon- available. Go get yeah. it. Internal monitoring and hardening uh, for the use of scripting languages to hamper lateral movement. 
regularly monitor for new ways. By the way, let, let's add to that in that uh, if you ever get WatchGuard's EPDR or, or AD360 endpoint products, one of the things it has is contextual engine protection, which let's just call them rules, but pays attention to scripting languages to look for uh, malicious use of them in lateral movement Basically, to, to block that. You can still use PowerShell, but we'll watch and see if you're using it in a suspicious way and then block it then. Or more specifically, if a, a hidden process on your computer is using it in a specific way, that is bad. Hopefully it's not you, unless you're that inside attacker. Hopefully not. Uh, and then finally, always implement a cyber resilience and recovery strategy because, again, there's no silver bullet. Nothing's perfect, and something will eventually happen. So you got to make sure you're able to respond to it and continue business. Wow, sounds like all the same things we just said on our ISR webinar, or our Kaseya attack webinar, or our Colonial Pipeline webinar. Maybe a uh, uh, virus total or four four three fans. Who knows? <laughs> They have better information than us. I'll give it to them. I mean, we see a lot of malware, but uh, they see significantly they, they, more. Well, they, they they see some of our malware and everyone else's. Yep, because we share it. Either share way, it it's them. a great report. If you Google like virus total ransomware report, I'm sure you'll be able to find a link to it. It's worth checking out just to see the data and confirm what you're already probably aware of. <laughs> Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey's at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the443podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you'll hear from us next week. In about five minutes, you can also reach me at at whimsicalplatypus.